Welcome to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about two very important things. Number one, the stories shared here are often gritty, raw, and vulnerable, and very likely will include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Number two, this podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself or Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion during the live stream. And we encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. And so this podcast is about exploring the stories that take place between the before and after photos, not just in the realm of weight loss, but in all areas of life. So let's dive in. All right, welcome back. It's my pleasure today to be hosting Max or Maxwell Ivy, also known as the Blind Blogger. Max, really great to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks, John. It's uh, really good to get to spend some time with you and your audience and see if we can't uh, inspire some people to take some actions today. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, before we dive into your story, I want to let people know kind of where, where you're at right now and, and what you're doing, and then we're going to dive into how you got there. Right. Well, uh, currently I'm doing a lot of things having to do with podcasting. I have been, I've started a, a network for people who have disabilities to help them launch new shows or to help existing hosts grow their audiences. And that's under the, we call it the WYE network for what's your excuse. Okay. Uh, I have my own podcast under the same name. Uh, because a lot of people have said over the years, if Max can do it, then what's my excuse? So that just seemed to be a natural <laughs> fit for the name of this podcast. Uh, I teach people how to be great interview guests, uh, book them on podcasts, promote their interviews. And I also do some uh, some some life coaching along the way. I've I found that a lot of people didn't necessarily want to hire me as their life or their business coach. But they have wanted me to do some of that while I'm helping them get exposure for their brands by helping them tell their stories better. Okay, that's that's pretty remarkable. And so, um, yeah, for those who are who are watching and just tuning in, Max is is visually impaired or I guess completely blind um, as it is now. But it, yes. it wasn't always this way. Correct. Yeah, I was born with perfect vision, and did, started losing my vision at probably about four although I really wasn't aware of it at that point. It's just that the family noticed that I was falling down and running into things more than the rest of the kids. Mm. So uh, they uh, had me see several eye doctors and eventually found one who knew what retinitis pigmentosa was, knew the signs and knew how to test for it to officially diagnose it. And so by the time I was five or six, my vision was uh, starting to decrease a, a little bit at a time. I've gone from being able to see perfectly to having to have very large glasses or large magnifiers to using closed circuit monitors to eventually to braille and audio and uh, depending on other people for uh, navigating, I guess you'd say navigating life as it is. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I had a my my vision decreased fairly gradually until I entered junior high school. I had a big drop off in my vision about the time I entered the sixth or seventh grade and stayed constant until I went off to college and then it started going bad again and eventually got down to what it is now. And so I'm 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm awfully curious then, you know, and I'm not sure how much of this you, you remember or recall, but just, I'm thinking like when you're four, five years old and kind of becoming aware, like, were you aware at that time that you had a condition that would lead you to eventually losing your sight altogether? No, no, I just, I was aware that I couldn't see it good as good at night as I, as I could before that I was aware that I was needing more and more light to read a book. Uh, I'm sure that you've, and many of your listeners have, you know, been at that age where uh, you wanted to read a book and maybe it was past your bedtime or whatever, and you could do it in a fairly dark room. So I, you know, started noticing that I had to have a lot more light in order to read. Reading was one of my very uh, big pastimes back then. Um, I knew that I was not as good at uh, anything requiring hand-eye, con- uh, you know, uh, coordination was not was yep. never good at sports. <laughs> uh, in fact, in elementary school, I was so bad that the that our teacher, our, our homeroom teacher, decided to make me the pitcher for the kickball team, kickball games, because then neither side would have to pick me, and neither side could accuse <laughs> the other. <laughs> Yeah, and and also it led to consistent pitching. So neither side could blame the other for, you know, maybe the pitcher throwing a ball that shouldn't have been thrown that particular way. Um, <laughs> right, know, right. You know. So uh, yeah, and and along the way, I, I I would assume that you've you've made some friends and some connections and whatnot. Um, and and did they did they also have sort of an understanding that you were you were visually impaired? How how do you explain that as a child? Right. Well, uh, you know, this is this is in the 70s and 80s. So definitely before the Internet, um, back in a time where, you know, you went to school, you were with uh, teachers who paid attention and and in general, students were were nowhere near as mean as they can be today. And in my case, when we went home, uh, my grandfather, when he moved the family out from Houston out to what? we'll call a suburb now, but was farm country. Then he gave each of his kids land to put a home or a mobile home on. So when the school day was over and the bus got to our house, there'd be like 14 kids getting off that bus at one, one, one destination, you know? Okay. And so after school, it was pretty much, it was us Wagners and IVs and Crouches and Servers. So uh, I think that the other kids in the family probably knew there was something going on, but I, I don't know that they knew or that anybody had told them. Uh, I do know that I did have a couple of cousins of cousins that uh, would, you know, maybe uh, maybe try to get an advantage over me when playing board games because <laughs> real there was something different there. But uh, I'd say for the most part, it was uh, – I'd say my brother, Michael, who's only a year and a half younger than me, I I think he had the most of it because quite often he had to be responsible for me. And, you know, I don't don't know about your family, but in my family, generally, whichever one is the oldest child is the one that's raised with the expectation that they'll look after the rest of them. So, right. Yeah. So there were many times my brother, Michael, had to take me with him to do things and I'm sure he had no interest in me being the the tag along older brother who happened to be, you know, visually impaired. And I know there's times when I accidentally broke some of his toys and 
there's was even an incident once where I rode a bicycle over him and oh, dear. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully he was not seriously injured, you know, um, things like that. So, uh, but yeah, the family, they either, uh, they either, the other kids in the family either didn't know or ignored it until I got to be, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And then it became something everybody knew. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I remember about back then is when I entered junior high school, we had uh, orientation and mobility instructor that started teaching me how to use a white cane. And my brother, okay. so like if I was going to the movies with somebody, my brother was was really bad about this. He would go, okay, Max, I don't mind you going sighted guide. You know, that's where you put your hand on the other person's elbow or shoulder. He said, but you got to bring that white cane with you so they don't think we're a couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So as, as you go into to junior high, um, did your understanding, uh, the condition, I, I'm, it was, uh, was it pigment? Uh, sorry, I, I don't want to get it wrong here. Um, just, just call it RP. That's what most, RP. What most people refer to it. So I went to a, a summer program in when I was, uh, probably 13 or 14 where, you know, it was, was really made more clear to me what I had and what the mm. end results probably would be. And I think after I went there and had a better understanding for, of it myself was when the rest of the family started to be a lot more open about uh, about the fact that I would be eventually losing most, if not all, of my vision. Yeah. And, and was there ever, um, I guess, because I think that's a lot to have sort of weighing on a young mind as you know 12 13 years old moving in the team which is already kind of awkward enough for 14 years old and you have this kind of weighing on your mind that yeah. my future is going to look different because this is what's likely going to happen right. how, how did you get through that like and, and were there times that you just felt like life is not fair and felt really <laughs> frustrated by this yeah there were times when it was very frustrating uh i was always one of the better students so as my vision got worse made uh made completing homework or uh, finishing tests and other assignments so much more difficult. It was like I had to work really a whole lot harder than anybody else had to. And, you know, went from being one of the best students to maybe just an above average student in high school. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. reading was another one of those things. I really, and, you know, in the earlier years, I looked forward to going to our library on Friday and picking out books. And right, yeah, you know, you just can't go into the library and pick them off a shelf anymore. You know, that's that's very aggravating. And but I I credit the way I've turned out as far as this goes. With I think there's three important parts of it. One is while my family wasn't affluent, we lived in a school district that had money. Yeah. So the schools could make sure that I was. Uh, was educated and the people in our special education department were there to teach me how to, to solve problems, to teach me how to, to be able to complete the assignments either by myself or with as little help as, as necessary, but to figure out ways to get things done as opposed to, as opposed to a lot of schools where it's really, let's just, we're just going to keep them here until the state says we don't get paid for them no more. And then we'll turn them loose somewhere else. You know, that, <laughs> right, right. That, that's, that was a big part of it. Another thing is, is, is in, uh, 81, I found a, uh, a scout troop for visually impaired boys here in the Houston area. 
And okay. so I started uh, participating in the scouts uh, about three or four times a week, a month, going out uh, doing the camping things with them like any other boy would do. And uh, went through the skill awards and the merit badges and eventually became one of the few blind Eagle Scouts. So, okay. uh, so having, having that being able to connect with those other, other kids and also their, you know, their parents being able to talk to my parents, I think that helped a lot. And then right. the third you part, don't feel the same sense of isolation, I suppose. And you realize you're not alone in this. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, you know, now that we have uh, group, we have support groups through social media and virtual meetups on zoom. There's a lot of that. That's more available now than it was then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, but the third part of this is just the background I come from. I, I come from a family of carnival owners. Right. Yeah. Uh, that itself grandf- sounds like an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it was sometimes more than an adventure than we wanted it to be most of the time. So but when you grow up in that kind of a business, and it's not just restricted to the carnival business, it also applies to people that are in farming or ranching or operate mom and pop businesses. You 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 uh, you learn to understand that you're never going to have all the time and money and resources that you would like to have, but you just have to find a way to get things done. So in my family, there wasn't a lot of tolerance or time allowed for people to feel sorry for themselves, even if they had a good reason to feel yeah. sorry for themselves. Because in, in my family, we we were taught from a young age, there's only one thing that matters if you're a carny. The only thing that matters in your life is, can you make opening? Can, right. on, you know, <laughs> on Thursday or Friday night, can they ride the Ferris wheel or the Tilt-A-Whirl? Can they buy a cotton candy or funnel cake? And can they try to win a stuffed teddy bear? That's all yeah. that matters. So, you know, you that really forces you to think about things, you know, in a different way than I think a lot of other people in my same situation might have. Right. And now I'm kind of curious then, you know, you see you grew up in a family of, of carnies. And so a family that run like a carnival business, which very few people actually get much insight into how this, how this operates because they just sort of they see maybe the carnival kind of rolls up and they set up in a parking lot or a fairgrounds or something like that. And they got these rides and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, did, did that ever uh, score you any, I was thinking, what did your friends sort of think about this? And uh, did, could you leverage that for sort of any additional friend points for like getting people rides and things like that? <laughs> well, if I'd have been more mercenary, I could have. Uh, I do know that I never lacked for for a book report or a story when the first week of school came around and they wanted to know what did I do for my summer vacation. I know that I never had a problem with that one. Right. You know, yeah. Um, but there was a it's not so much more anymore because the carnival business has become it's become so much more corporate. And right. Right. There aren't a lot of small family businesses left in it. My my cousin, Jason Wagner, his his side of our family used to have a reasonably sized sized carnival, but he's grown it up to about a 35 ride outfit. And and that's considered kind of average nowadays for a carnival in, in, in Texas. So, uh, but there used to be a rule. You never, you never booked an event in your own hometown because you didn't want to, there was always a possibility that no matter how hard you tried, something bad might happen and then you'd have to live with these people. Right, right. 
I, I, you know, I would have never thought about that, but yeah, hey, if a ride goes goes wrong and someone gets hurt or, or you know, heaven forbid they they're they're killed because we've seen tragic accidents like this, you don't want to have that happen in a town that you're you're a part of. And so that meant like over the summer that you're you're traveling with your family in the carnival, or yeah, um, what the way it used to work is a older relative, say like grandparents, um, older uncles and aunts would keep the kids during the school year because the school would run from September of one year to May of the next year. Mm. And the carnivals would generally be out working at least here in Texas from February of one year through to October or November. So you had some time there where school was still in session, but the carnivals were already working. So you, so usually like me and my brothers, we would stay with my grandmother here in Conroe or spring back then until school let out. And then we would all join the carnival until it came time to go back to school. And then we would stay with that same relative for four or five weeks till the family's uh, events started being here in the area again, because Houston is a very fertile area for festivals and also a lot of malls mm -hmm. and shopping centers even back then. So, so that's the way you would do it. And did you get, uh, did you get free rides uh, just being, <laughs> It, it depending on the ride, actually, if it was our rides and it was during a time of the day when when the when the midway wasn't real busy, uh, one of the most common times for us to get the ride was, you know, pretty much every town when they have a festival, they have a parade. OK, and after the after the parade, there'll be anywhere from an hour to a few hours where the midway is just packed. You're just doing it as much as you can do as fast as you can do it. But yep. then there usually be an hour or two low between the post-parade blow-off and the beginning of the evening work. So that was usually our best chance to uh, ride the rides because we were supposed to to stay out of the way and not uh, and not get in the way of people making money. So right. Uh, so that would be one. But but the thing is though, there were people who had some of the bigger rides like the bumper cars or. Um, I'm trying to think like the hurricane. Some of those people would bring their rides on our midway and they would just tell us, look, your carny, your your kids cannot ride our rides for free. They're gonna have to pay if they want to ride. Um, okay. You know, so that did happen. And then the other thing it costs sure, money to operate, I guess. Well, yeah, plus there's a limited amount of time for them to get their money back on their investment for each week's work. So we we always understood it. We would complain about it, but we were for sure. know, we were we were with it. So we we understood it. And then as far as the as far as the food and the sodas and stuff goes, we could get pretty much what we wanted of, of that within reason. But we had to go to the back of the of the trailer or booth and, you know, in effect, come in through the help entrance. Right. And, right. and uh, later on, even even some of those. Uh, they would make us pay for our drinks because they wanted to discourage us from drinking more than we needed to. So we'd we'd pay like half of what the retail would be. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so if I understand correctly um, with a the carnival, then like let's say if, if your parents own the carnival, they don't necessarily own all of the rides. Would it be that they own the, the event and the event booking? And then there might be an operator who operates a particular ride and goes from carnival to carnival and then they rent a space in it or how, how does that work? That's exactly correct. And their space generally what, what happens is, is the carnival owner, he either rents the space if it's a shopping mall or 
he sets up on a percentage of his gross to be paid to the organizers if it's a fair or a festival. And then like if you have what's called an independent ride, then you would either pay me so much for the week or you'd pay me an additional percentage on top of the percentage I have to give the committee. So like, for example, if I promise the committee that they're going to get 25% of all ride sales, this independent ride owner may have to pay 35 or 40% of his gross to me. And then I keep the difference between the 25 and the 35 or 40. So right. that was okay. And then if you operated a game or a food booth, that was generally handled on a flat rate. We would decide that each space is worth this much money. And if you wanted that space, you'd have to give us that much money. Now, right. This is here in the U.S. where even now that's pretty much the way things are done, except at the bigger events, they usually have a formal application and bid process. But okay. in, in the U.K., you know, as you know, I'm, a, I'm also an equipment broker and I deal with people all over the world in that, in that side of my business. In the U.K. and Australia, they have what are called guilds. And the owner of the ride or the game actually owns the location at each given event. And they have the right to pass that right to that location down in their wills, which they do. Okay. How about that? That's quite something. So you, you, your life never, you're, you're growing up yours despite having this condition, uh, RP, it never, it never lacked a, a sense of adventure getting to kind of grow up in and around the, the carnivals and whatnot. No, no. And they found ways for me to contribute. I, I was always a big kid. So uh, they would allow me to help set up and take down rides. Although my dad yeah. used to, although my dad used to joke that if anybody ever saw me helping them set up and tear down rides, that we'd probably be in trouble for it. Right, yeah. right. If they were aware that you know, <laughs> hey, hey, we got we, we got a blind guy helping us set up rides. So yeah, um, yeah, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I started helping with the bookings while I was still in high school. I, you know, I'd call people on the phone or actually type letters and send letters out to people for us. And uh, I, like I said, I helped set up and take down. I, when I was real young, five, six years old, to keep me safe because they were always concerned about me with my, with what vision I did have on the midway. My grandmother put me to work in her cotton candy stand, uh, putting the popcorn in the box and putting the butter on the popcorn and putting the, the snow cones together at five, at five and a half years old. So, okay. um, you know, and, I like to tell people I've done everything you can do in our business except drive. Right. Yeah. Fair. Fair enough. Um, and so, in, in the later years of your your high school years, so so growing up, you spent a lot of time with your your aunts and uncles because um, your parents being on the road with with the carnival. So I'm, I, I would I would imagine that you had a pretty good relationship with like your your extended family to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we had I had a really good relation with uh, with older people in general. I seemed to enjoy them and they seemed to accept me in a way they didn't accept any of the other kids. And I think the vision loss might've been part of that. And also because I think my vision loss and just the way I was, uh, was taught by my other, by my parents, I think I listened and was more still than a lot of the other kids. So uh, I was, I was welcomed and educated by the older people in the family, the extended family, but you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a push pull kind of a thing when you are in the same business as your entire family because yeah. some sometimes you know it was like hey we we love you we're gonna help you um, 
can I bring some rides to your event? And then other times it was, I want to run you out of business. Um, I want your bookings because it's better than my bookings. And I'm going to tell these, I'm going to tell your committees anything I have to tell them to get them. So, uh, so it's you know, yeah, sometimes it was, you know, sometimes it was, like I say, sometimes it was, you know, all of us Wagners extended together. And sometimes it was, you know, at one time, my, my, my extended family at one time operated four carnivals in the state of Texas, okay. all, all wow. in the Southeast part of the state. So there's always so many really good bookings. And so sometimes there, sometimes the fact that we were all carnies was, uh, was caused a bunch of virtue, you know? <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so then um, as you graduate high school and you're, you're going to college, your vision is deteriorated quite significantly. You're not fully blind at this point, but it, for, for all intents and purposes, there really wasn't much function to your vision. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I'd say that would be accurate. And uh, throughout college, I had to employ readers to uh, help me complete the tests or uh, produce the term papers and sometimes even to help take notes in class. So I did that during college. I I have a degree in political science from Texas A&M Corpus Christi. It took me six years to get. Yep. However, I am proud of my degree, even though I don't know how much it has served me in, in my many uh, business endeavors. But I'm proud of my degree because I recently learned a statistic about people with disabilities at college graduation. And mm. and that is that if you combine somebody who's a first-time college student and who is also has a disability, the graduation rate for that person is 15%. Wow. Okay. That's quite significant. Yeah. So, so I'm proud of my degree. I wasn't able to get admitted to law school. You know, me and the family, we thought, hey, it would not, would not be a bad thing for a family of carnival owners to have an attorney in the family. But Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but my, my law school admissions test numbers were not good enough. And this was, you know, this was uh, 1980, 1990. So a lot of the differing attitudes that the admissions people have now or even 10 years ago weren't existent at that time. I... I actually had the dean of admissions from Texas Tech University send me a letter, and I wish I had kept it. And every once in a while, I think about looking up and seeing who it was in 1990. Mm -hmm. Because he sent me this letter. He said, Mr. Ivey, I don't know why you want to become an attorney, because all they'll ever let you do is wills and, uh, and yeah, that will, I think he said wills and estates, but those are the same thing. So, but he basically said, all they'll ever let me do is be a lawyer who's a clerk. And I, I remember thinking, you know, I should have kept that. And if it, if it had been nowadays, of course, you know, that would have been a social media thing. You know, we would have. Right, right. Yeah, that, that, you would, you that, yeah, you would have you taken quite quite a hit on social media for for going after somebody with a disability like that, you know. And, and you know, social media can be a little bit like that. And it can be maybe a, a plus or a minus. Um, yeah. So then, um, but by the time you graduated college, uh was your, your vision loss was complete at that point? Oh yeah. 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 It was, um, yeah. I had, by that time I basically could, you know, I could see light, like sunrise and sunset would be two of the things I could see, but I couldn't tell you the colors of the, of the, of the uh, sunrise or sunset. I could just tell you where it was because it was overly bright. Um, right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so I graduated and like I said, law schools wouldn't, wouldn't accept me. So I went to, I went through a training program at uh, world services for the blind in Arkansas. And I went to work as an automated collections site 
operator for the Internal Revenue Service for a little over two years. Okay. Until, until the stress of being the first person people talked to when they got those nasty letters from the IRS basically got to me. And I, I said to myself, you know, I can be happy and middle and middle class. Excuse me. I can be unhappy and middle class. Or I can be happy and be broke. So I went home. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, not knowing, you know, not knowing if or when I would receive any income from, you know, returning to the family business. But luckily for me, my brother, Michael, who is a very talented airbrush artist, was getting a lot of work at that time. And he had a two bay game trailer that he needed to get rid of. And I had a little cash. So we made a deal where he sold me his game trailer on credit. And I, I had a, a trailer with a duck pond where, you know, they pick up the ducks and look at the numbers on the bottom of them. Right. Right. And, yeah. I, and I had a game with a tag balloon game where they, you know, they would pop the balloons and you'd look at the number, the, the other person, I'd, I'd hire somebody to work that side of the trailer They'd look at the number behind the behind the broken balloon and see what prize to give them, and uh, as that was what I did. And then, of course, I went back to helping with the bookings. I continued to help set up and take down rides, and I was uh, I was the sidekick for my dad. You know, we okay. were, yeah. Well, you know, we were never a big carnival, so and I, you know, not having any vision. There were things I could help with, but there were a lot of things I couldn't help with. So when my dad would have to make a third or a fourth trip some weeks to get all of our equipment from one town to the next, uh, I would ride with him. And so Mm -hmm. we basically spent a lot of time going up and down the road together in raggedy old carnival trucks and trying to get to the next town each week. And, you know, I learned... I learned a lot of what I what I know now about, you know, finding solutions and being positive and asking for help. A lot of that stuff, you know, I learned all those years of, of hanging out with him. But the the really cool thing was is there were there were so many times basically me and him would get back to the the previous town and we would, you know, just figure out some way to get that last piece of, of equipment in so we could make opening. And people would always ask him, they'd go, hey, Max, how did y'all do that? You know, how did y'all lose that 900-pound moonwalk with just you two guys with no winch? That would be one example. And, yeah, he, would yeah. always, and he would always just look at them, and I and he would they would tell me he would just look at them and grin and say, what, did we have a choice? Right. <laughs> that's, you know, that's quite a, t- a testament really to, to resilience, really. And, you know, I think as we sit here and chat with you, you know, it, it, I don't, I don't hear like a trace of bitterness or negativity or anything like that. And I think people listening to this, if, if they weren't aware that you were blind, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have any idea because you just described this as though like you're, you're living your life. Um, yeah, and so some of the, but, some of the, it's, it's some of the happiest times of my life. And one of the worst times of my life was when he passed away in 2003. And then by 2006, we no longer had a carnival. So, yeah. You know, yeah. that that led to depression that led to additional weight gain because basically I lost my best friend. I lost my business partner. And I also lost the person who was optimistic about the future of our business and, you know, was kind of like a conspirator in, OK, what can we do with the money and ability we have where we can add another ride or a game or where we can improve our our event bookings? So we can, you know, take at least a little step forward 
this year for next year. And mm. uh, with without him, the rest of my family was more concerned about uh, consistency and, you know, finding a way to do things that was less stressful. But to me, less stressful was less fun because I, right, yeah. I love the whole us against the world. I, I love the whole we're just going to find a way somehow to get to next week. You know, I, as, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's going to sound crazy. I even enjoyed those times I had to call bill collectors and tell them that we couldn't pay them for their ride or had to, you know, call an event and tell them that we couldn't come to their event this year because it was all part of that particular journey and those particular experiences. And the really cool thing is, as you mentioned earlier, there are not a lot of people who have experience with the carnival business or the amusement industry world that all that stuff has made me the person I am and has also made me the brand that I am. You know, it's also led all these stories of my days as a carny of the days going through the vision loss and you know all these, these anecdotes and stuff. That's what makes, what makes me compelling. And it's, yeah, what, yeah. it's what will make every single one of your listeners compelling. The hard part though is you have to be willing to see your past experiences as having value. And quite often it takes an outside person to help us understand the value of our experiences and the difficulty that we've gone through and overcome. Quite often until we somebody from outside us points all of this stuff out to us, we're thinking, and there are a lot of people, I used to think this myself, who are thinking, I really haven't done anything that I should be proud of. I really haven't done mm. anything all that scary, difficult, or challenging. I just do the same things over and over again. And the thing is, I guarantee them, they have done some some very difficult, strenuous, scary things, but we often discount them when we look at them through our own eyes. And also time will fool us into thinking. I mean, I actually have to be reminded to tell people that I'm a blind Eagle Scout. You know, only right. only three percent of the of the boys in this country that that start down that road make it to the end, and that's before you add in my vision loss. You know, yeah, which is quite I'm, quite remarkable. You know, and I'm not I'm not I'm not mentioning that to brag. I'm just mentioning it as something that I should talk about all the darn time, but I don't. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you know what? What I love about th this show here is it's it's really about sharing people's lives through adversity and how the experiences that we go through, how how it, it shapes who, who we become. And you know, I think others they listen to a story like this, and we, and we look for elements of ourselves that we might find in that story that give us a sense of hope. What's and as you said before, the the, the what's your excuse? Uh, you know, if if Max can do it, then then I probably can too. You know, and I think that's that's an amazing motto. And I just wonder, you know, because a lot of people just wonder like flat out how do you do it you know day to day because you have memory of having sight you have pictures in your mind from from having sight previously and how how do you sort of like maybe if it ever comes up how do you keep it day like maybe a wistfulness or a desire for things to be different or things like that or a hope for a solution that might restore your sight right well for me i don't re I, I very rarely think about my vision loss in that particular point of view and I think that's mainly because I just have too many other things going on. Um, I it's and it's not just the work. I mean, it's a good book. It's my exercise now having to, now having a physical therapist because I'm getting a little mm. older and some of the some of the parts don't work as well as they used to. You know, but I generally um, 
there's a great quote from Elizabeth Gilbert, and most people know Elizabeth Gilbert for Eat, Pray, Love, and they think she's always been a, a famous, successful writer, and she's always been successful, but she had to work really hard and write a lot of freelance articles before she became known for that. But she wrote a great book called Big Magic, and I encourage okay. anybody to read that book. It's about people involved in creative projects, uh, whether they're doing it for business or for passion. And she says in there that curiosity will carry you through when passion deserts you. And I love that. Yes, I know. That that line just stuck with me, and I get chills every time I share it with somebody because it is so true. If you can find something that interests you, even amongst in all the BS that you hate about your day, then you can keep going. You can even, yeah. you know. You can even do more than just keep going if you can find something. You know, the old expression, find something to hang your hat on. So, yeah, yeah. You know, if there's something you're curious about, and of course, uh, a lot of people get stuck because they think, yeah, there are things I'm curious about, but I could never make money from them because that's what we, <laughs> that's that's right. what we always default to in our worlds. We always go back to, well, if I'm going to do it, I should get paid for it. I should make money for it. Um, but, you know, she says another great thing in that book about the creative process. She says, to, to expect or hope that your creative work will provide you your sole income is putting too much pressure on your passion. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. you know, so there are lots of things that people are curious about, you know, that you look at and you think, man, I'd like to know more about that. I'd like to know why that does, why that does. But, you know, we'll usually stop ourselves because we'll think we don't have the time or we don't have the money or, We'll think, hey, there's no way I could ever make money from that. Or we'll think it's just way too difficult for us to learn and become accomplished at. But, you know, you really just have to go back to curiosity, fun, doing things for the sake of doing them and seeing mm. that where, where that takes you. And this is one of the things I really struggle with, John. It's a, And I'm going to mention it to you this way and see if maybe you have some ideas for me. Um I am known for basically people have suggested I try things. They've challenged me to do things and I just start doing them and I yeah. learn as I go and I get better as I go. And trust me, if y'all want to see some really embarrassing stuff, look at my videos from seven years ago because, you know, it was like Max broadcasting from a cave with horrible sound equipment too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you know, so, uh, but I just generally, I start doing things and then I learn about them and I get better, you know. So I I really wish I could translate this into helping people understand uh, as far as avoiding the overwhelm, avoiding talking themselves out of trying something. To me, I know Michael Jordan made a lot of money telling people to just do it, but that's uh, that's kind of where I have been throughout a lot of my life. You know, I needed a website. I started learning how to code HTML. I uh, yeah. needed to get people to open my emails. I started uh, offering them free uh, text-based pages on my website. You know, I I yeah. needed an intro for my pot for my first video back before I knew I was even doing a podcast. And so, <laughs> and so I sang a few bars from Nat King Cole's Christmas story. And the next thing I know, people are asking me to record myself singing. So, yeah. you know, so I just do these things. And I don't really worry too much about about the about the end result, about whether or not I'm ever going to be great at them or ever going to make money at them. And I wish I could help people to get to that place. And I just haven't come up with a 
easy way to tell them to just go ahead and take whatever small step they can talk themselves into today and, and go from there. Yeah, you know, and I think I think part of it, especially for the younger generation, um, speaking as a 40 year old, I'm not quite a geriatric yet, but, you know, for the younger generation, I just think about um, how we've sort of been conditioned in this world of like maybe instant instant success or instant visibility and so on. And, and, and when we realize it doesn't necessarily translate into instant income, that, that it takes time to develop yourself as a person and, and to go on this journey. I mean, Max, you're a fascinating guy to talk to. And I'm thinking I, I could probably go another hour because there's so many uh, elements of your story that we've yet to even explore. And you're a good storyteller as well, which is really fantastic. But it's it's finding joy in the journey and finding joy in, yes. you know, in, in like yes. the little things every day. It's 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 waking up with a sense of purpose. Like I get to work towards something else. You know, for example, I I you know, I fell into podcasting totally by accident, you know, I, I like, how, how do I even get it? And yet I've discovered I have a great love for it. I have a love for people's stories and I want to keep doing it. But I, I just fell into it by accident because uh, I saw an ad one day for like, be a guest on someone's podcast. And I thought, well, you know, I should try that because maybe I don't like always like hustling and grinding to post content on social media, but I do like to talk. And, and, you know, over the last year, I've been a guest on over 100 and, 160 podcasts. And I, I listened to some of my first interviews and I think, oh, boy, you know, and, and then and then people would ask, well, when are you going to start your own podcast? I'm like, well, yes. I don't know. What, yes. what do I even do? What, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> and so, I, you know, I just started a podcast and I was like, well, I, I like people's stories. I want to tell them. And I think probably one of my my greatest assets is my curiosity, and and I, I now call it my compassionate curiosity. So my desire to understand the human condition, um, is what leads it. So I, I don't know if if there's some nugget in there that that you can you can glean that that might help encourage people, because well, you know it, it hey, helps. It, it helps. But I was I had such a strong reaction to your story because that's exactly how I got into podcasting. <laughs> I, I, I started doing radio and podcast interviews in 2013 because I'm a blind guy stuck in a suburb with no transportation. And I was looking around for a way that I could connect with people because I knew there had to be a way. And so I discovered I could, you know, get on the phone. Back then, everybody was doing blog talk radio but I could, or Skype. I could get on the phone and talk to people and share my story and reach thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, any, you know, pretty much anywhere in the world. And uh, I did that first one in 2013. And one of these days I'm going to post that where more people can hear it because it was horrible. It was a it was a train wreck, but I ended up getting asked back the next week. And then uh, I did six, six months of every Friday. I was on, was talking with the same people in addition to doing other podcasts and, and radio interviews. And that's what happened. People would start asking me, Max, when are you going to have your own show? And I go, look, I don't want my own show. I that's beyond my level of ability. I said, right. but I but I made the I made the classic mistake. I said, but if somebody were to come along who could manage the technology for me, so all I have to do is show up and talk, then I would be down for that. Well, um, <laughs> my good friend Frederick Bai, who's a conductor from from Quebec, Canada, uh, shows up like three weeks later and goes, "Hey, Max, I've been wanting to 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 produce another podcast in addition to my own." He said, I'm thinking about starting a network, actually. What, what do you say if uh, if I just run the tech and you just show up? I'm like, yeah, I shouldn't have said nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, but, but, you know, he was true to his word, and we did it that way for several months. And then uh, at one point, he realized I didn't really need his his uh, his assistance anymore. 
So he contrived to uh, have an unscheduled appointment one week. And I basically, in the course of 24 hours, learned about Zoom, set up an account, did a test recording, and then interviewed my first podcast guest via Zoom for uh, for my show, What's Your Excuse? So I got it the same way. And then, you know, to, to take it a little further, after I had the podcast a while, uh, people have asked me to help them uh, launch their podcasts or give them advice on what I would tell them to do or not do with a podcast. I've given talks at conferences like uh, PodFest Expo and Word and uh, WordCamp New York on uh, creating blogs or podcasts. And then a year, well, it's almost two years ago now, I was looking for a an idea, something really crazy to pitch a grant competition for people with disabilities. The idea being mm. it, had to, it had to serve the, it had to serve the better good. It had to either educate or advocate or, or do something unusual and be done by and for people who were visually impaired because it was run by the White House for the blind. Yeah. So uh, Alex, Alex Sanfilippo of podmatch.com, really good friend of mine. We've known each other for years now. He said, Max, why don't you help other blind people launch podcasts? And I said, well, you're out of your darn mind and there's no <laughs> way I'm capable of doing that. And then he, he basically went down the fact that I've been a podcast host and a guest and coach people on being a guest. And then he said, he said, he, he then he shared two of my traits that he thought were really important. He said, one, Max, you're the most positive person I've ever met. So you would be very helpful when those people get, get down, frustrated, disgusted about their podcast, not making the progress they would like them to. And then he said, you are a master of finding and implementing creative solutions. And so yeah. <laughs> he talked me into it. So now I have, like I mentioned in the beginning, the, the What's Your Excuse podcast network. And we have, uh, I think we have three homegrown shows where I've helped people start brand new podcasts. We've got probably another 15 shows that are syndicated to it through their RSS fees where people can find out about them on the website. And uh, it's one of those things I'm still, there's just so much to learn, a lot of, yeah. a lot of curiosity, a lot of challenges. And especially since um, when I really was just that, just beginning to think about, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do this, you know, maybe starting a podcast network isn't as crazy. I was at uh, PodFest Expo and I went around to the vendors area and I asked all the tech people, I said, what would y'all tell me to do about starting a network? And I got two answers. The first one was don't do it, and the second one, <laughs> the second one was why would you want to? And yeah. and I'm thinking y'all are here to sell equipment. Y'all should be trying to talk me into it, not out of it. And yeah, you yeah. should be trying to sell me something that costs me four or five figures. Yeah. <laughs> so. But, yeah. Well, Max, there's so many elements to your story yet to explore. I might just have to bring you back as a guest at some point in time because that would the, be great. You know, it's it's been a, truly a pleasure talking to you. And the way that I always like to wrap up my shows is to ask my guests if there's one nugget you would like people to take away from this conversation. You know, what what would you like to make that? Well, this is a very difficult question for me because you know I have many things that I that I recommend people <laughs> to do. Um, I think I think I'm going to say let's just go back to the one everybody uses. You know, if Max can do it, then why can't I do it? So what I would like them to do. And this may sound egotistical. They're more than welcome to, to send an email and tell me I'm full of hot air or whatever words that you use. <laughs> I would say if there's something you really want to do 
and you want to do it bad enough to fail, bad enough for people to make fun of you, bad enough to look to look silly. Ask yourself, what would Max do today if he were about to try what I'm about to try? So whether that be weight loss and getting healthy, completing or starting a college degree program, starting a podcast, which, by the way, me and John can would both be happy to help you with, yeah. uh, you know, starting a blog, whatever it is, ask yourself, what is something that Max would do if he was in my place and he was about to do what I'm about to do? What is the one thing he would do today and then do it? And the important thing is don't talk about doing it. Don't say I'll do it five minutes from now. Don't say I'll do it tomorrow. Don't say that sounds like a good idea, but I'm not going to do it yet. Just think about that one thing that you can do that you think Max would do and just go ahead and do it. And that's very simple. <laughs> and it also makes me sound like an egotistical uh, Yahoo. But, I, <laughs> but hey, if people are going to say it about me, why not use it to help people? You know, if they're absolutely, gonna, I love that. If they're going to say, if Max can do it, then what's my excuse? Then why not challenge them to overcome those excuses by using that very line? I love that, Max. Thank you so much for for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. You're truly an inspiration, and it's really it's absolutely been a pleasure. Well, thank you, John. It's been a real pleasure for me, and I will look forward to uh, a time where we'll get to talk again, whether that be in person or virtual, whether that be for your podcast or just two guys hanging out and continuing the conversation. Uh, would love to talk about maybe having you or, or possibly some of the people who watch and listen to your show on mine down the road if they also have great stories that need help being told. Would love that. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become. And I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you. Because if you're still here, your story's not done yet. So keep moving forward. Anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life.